Hi everyone. Gid says that uh, the timing's all run askew already, and uh, he's kindly said I can take my full quota, so you don't need to panic, Leonard. You can uh, come in due course and have your time as well. I'm going to have a look at uh, some of the occasions where we come across the threshing floor and just wander through the, the different references and glean something for us. We start with three verses, so three little sections. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11 and 12. words of John the Baptist. Matthew 3, 11 and 12. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly, thoroughly, purge his floor, and gather his wheat into the garner, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Luke 22, for the words about Peter. Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. And the last one for now is back in the Old Testament, and the book of Numbers, chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15, and we'll read 17 to 21. Numbers 15, 17, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land, whither I bring you, then it shall be that when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall offer up a heave offering unto the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your dough for a heave offering. As you do the heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you heave it. On the first of your, and of the first of your dough you shall give unto the Lord a heave offering in your generations. So we'll look at other threshing floors in due course, but we can start with these three little sections. The Lord Jesus has the winnowing fork in his hand and in our little passage in Matthew chapter 3 we're really thinking about end times when the Lord separates the wheat into the barn and the chaff he burns with unquenchable fire. We say it's the end times and that the separation is between the believer and the unbeliever just like the sheep and goats and other parables that the Lord told that divides one from the other. Unquenchable fire. 
Our God is a consuming fire. And it will be tough indeed for those who face the fire in the, in the end judgment day. It's the same in India as it is in Israel that about four o'clock in the afternoon a breeze usually comes across your face and that's the time usually when the farmer having gathered his corn and having beaten out the ears of corn begins to sift the wheat from the chaff. In India you see them with a little basket and they throw it all up in the air and the wind just blows the chaff away. It's worthless, it's useless, it's only fit to be burned. But down into the little basket comes the ears of corn. Sometimes we travel along a road in India and uh, all across the little road will be masses of straw and they expect your car or your vehicle, if it's a bus, to go over the straw and of course knock out the heads. No tractors in, the, in some of the villages and so that's a, a very cheap and useful means of knocking out the wheat. It's interesting when he speaks about the believer here that he calls them the wheat. He doesn't call them barley, for example, because there was a difference, wasn't there? The barley was the corn of the poor people, as we see in John chapter 6, and the, the lad that brought his barley loaves. It was a, a mark of poverty, and it was the first harvest. We learn that from the book of Ruth, don't we? That she came to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest to do with poverty to do with humiliation if you came along to the conference today with barley bread you'd prob probably be looked down at because it's not as good as the wheat he doesn't call us barley he calls us wheat and I think that's, that's precious in itself that he makes a difference even in the grains of corn but we pause, don't we, to think of those who are here described as chaff, the lost, the heathen, the unbeliever that face this asbestos fire, as, as the Greek word has it, unquenchable fire. We pause to think of them. And we do think of them in the final judgment. And if we consider that, then it helps us to understand, doesn't it? Verse 11. The Lord shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Those who are the wheat, those who are believers, will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the unbeliever baptized with the unquenchable fire. Of course, we face that fire too. Because in our judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3 speaks about our work being tested, gold, silver, and so on. But on the other hand, we might produce wood, hay, and stubble. The chaff is in our life, and we'll consider how the Lord wants to remove it sometimes. The fan is in his hand, the winnowing fork, 
And although we say this is the end times, the final judgment, nevertheless it's true that the Lord used the winnowing fork in his own ministry, didn't he? And the separation was there, the blessed beatitudes of Matthew 5, as opposed to the great woes of Matthew 23 that came to the scribes and the Pharisees. The wheat and chaff were being separated through his word. And it reminds me of Jeremiah 23, uh, when he's speaking, God is speaking about the dreams and the false prophets. And he says, what is the wheat to the chaff? What is God's word, which is wheat, compared to the dreams and the notions of men? And then he goes on to say, is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks in pieces the rock? The winnowing fork is in his hand. I suppose too, Ruth is a great example of the wheat. And although the reference to the threshing floor in the book of Ruth is when she comes to Boaz at night and sits or lies at his feet, Nevertheless, she's a good example of somebody brought to be the wheat. Before, the chaff that needed to be cast out of her life, in a sense, was the fact that she was five times referred to as the daughter of Moab. Moab had a, a very bad start with Lot and his daughter producing Moab, from which came that tribe. And she's described five times, daughter of Moabite. It shows the outcast, despised state that she was <coughs> presenting. And in a penniless and poverty state, that needed to be taken away. And it was, of course, by the character of the man with the winnowing fork in that day. And the character of the man is presenting to us the picture of our Lord Jesus with the winnowing fork too, isn't he? Boaz, strong, rich, and faithful. Elimelech had left the land, left the house of bread, hadn't he? But Boaz had stayed. Faithful indeed. And then he was a, a good master, kindly spoken, gentle in his dealings with Ruth. And when she came to the threshing floor, sent by her mother to find rest, to speak and beg to the kinsman redeemer, he was swift, wasn't he, to take action. She was told to sit still but he would not rest until he finished the matter. Wait until the morning. The morning is always a good time to wait for, isn't it? It shows the character then of the man with the winnowing fork, gentle, kindly, redeeming. He didn't only redeem Ruth as a bride, but he redeemed her inheritance saved her name and the poor the the barley was not even the barley the chaff was taken from her life 
and she became one of the wheat gathered into the garner, into the barn. But then we read about Peter, and the words are well known, but nevertheless, we are looking at the Lord's dealing in sifting a man. Simon, Simon, he starts, doesn't he? Going back to his old nature. Satan asked to have you, begged for you. And of course we know that it's begging for them all to sift them as wheat, all of the disciples. But the Lord Jesus says, I prayed for you, Peter. Individually, Peter, what needed to be sifted? Well, you'll say self-confidence, won't you? Was his faith sifted? I prayed for you that your faith may not be eclipsed. The, the Greek word is eclipsed. May not be dimmed. The light won't go out when the, the moon comes across the sun. That your faith may not fail. Well, his faith didn't fail because the Lord prayed for him. His courage failed. That we know. But his faith did not fail in the end. And the Lord brought him through. Thank God for the prayers of the Lord Jesus. But you and I too, at that judgment seat of Christ, we have to face, we have to look into that same face that looked at Peter Will it be the voiceless, grieved, yearning heart of the Savior that meets us that day? Will it be the joyous welcome? Well, we'll be sifted as wheat before that and on that day for sure. <coughs> Peter was converted turned again and strengthened his brethren. So it produced the good grain, the good harvest in the life of Peter. Slightly different in the, in the threshing floor at Gideon's place. Gideon was hiding his wheat from the Midianites this time. They're produced from the liaison between Abraham and his concubine. The Midianites came in, it says, like a great horde, wiped out all the harvest, wiped out everything that lived, all the cattle, everything was taken. But Gideon went to the wine press, didn't he? Not, not the best place to go to beat out the wheat, but he was there, and presumably it was a bit of courage that would go with a handful to members of his family and say, this, this is your provision, this is your food. He did well then, but he needed to be sifted too, didn't he? Because when the Lord came to him with the message that you're a mighty man of valor, he didn't believe it. Though he probably was, because to do what he did was very courageous. But, as he looked upon the, the whole of the harvest of the people of God, wiped out time after time. They labored so much and they brought in little. And 
Gideon says to the Lord, he says, if you're with us, Lord, why is all this happening to us? Why are we like this? And then he says, where are your wonders? Where's your mighty power? And again, the Lord says, the Lord is with you. Go in this your might. Have I not sent you? That should have been enough. But still he says, I'm of the smallest clan and I'm the least of all of those. What needed to be sifted? Unlike Peter, a lack of self-confidence. Unbelief. The promises of God were given to him. But he didn't believe them. He didn't, he knew about the wonders of God, but he didn't believe that they could happen, and least of all could happen through him. That needed to be sifted. And the Lord had drawn near to do just that. The signs followed, you remember, and the barley loaf that tumbled down into the camp that assured him that he was going to win the victory. The Lord dealt very gently with him, didn't he? Just like Peter, the Lord would have prayed that his faith did not fail and had come to him with the great promises of God to lift his, his heart in faith, to bring him to do the great wonders that he longed to see by going and winning the victory over the Midianites. Of course, he had to be reduced even more. Yes, you are the least of all the family and all the clan. But watch this. I'll bring the people from down to 10,000, down to 300, just to show you that I can use the weakest. The unbelief was sifted, was it? Changed in him? I think it was. And then I brought you to Numbers chapter 15. And we have the instructions of the Lord given to take some of the harvest, some of the meal, some of the grain, and to offer it as a heave offering before the Lord. The heave offering was to be offered on the first Sunday, first Sabbath, after the Passover. So it has to do with resurrection and we... We have learned, haven't we, that there was a waving of the, the first fruits on the Sunday after the Passover. And again on the day of Pentecost, 50 days later. What's the heave offering all about? Well, in terms of uh, the passage, it's a tenth. It's given a tenth of what you have. It goes on in, in Leviticus 18, in, it tells us that they were to give a tenth. But then that was given to the Levites, and the Levites themselves then had from that tenth, had to take a tenth and give it to the priests. So it was definitely a tenth. And then it was heaved up here. The word is lifted up. There was a difference, wasn't there, between the wave offering and the heave offering. The wave offering, later, not, not the 
threshing floor, but in the offering of the animal and the peace offering, the breast part of the animal was waved. And that was at this level. And it was from side to side. But then the shoulder was lifted up on high. An exaltation. And of course that reminds me of the high priest. And our names are written on his breast. And they're written on his shoulder. And you see the wave of the heart of the high priest and the exaltation of the one that lifts us before his face. The heart and the shoulder, the devotion and the strength of the Lord that are involved in this matter of the giving from the threshing floor. Lovely picture, isn't it? It's our high priest that receives the tithes. Is there anything that needed to be sifted in the passage I read in Numbers? Well, no, not really. But when you come on to, say, Malachi chapter 3, you remember that the call went out to the people, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you cannot contain. See, they didn't keep, the, they keep giving the tithes, did they? And in Malachi, the Lord had to say, you've robbed me. You haven't kept my ordinances, and you've robbed me. The high priest, in all his love and strength and devotion, is robbed. We're very good as a giving people. A lot of tithing goes on, and we can be commended by God for that. But surely it includes more. It includes our devotion. It includes our strength. It includes delighting in the Lord and, and enjoying what he gives us in our daily reading. It's bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse that counts. Our service and our worship. We need to perhaps consider King David and the threshing floor that appear in his life. There are three in fact, but two that I'll comment on now, if that's okay with you. We consider first that occasion with the cart in First Chronicles chapter 13. Chapter 15 and verse 13. What we're <clears throat> trying to do is trying to show the things that are being sifted from the lives of some of these great people but at the same time,
trying to show the tenderness with which the Lord deals with it and works in sifting. Just to recap for a moment, the Lord calls us his wheat, but he sifts out the unbelievers. And then Peter, in all the tenderness of his prayer and his look that brought him to repentance and renewal, that gentleness and, and kindness. And we saw the same with Gideon, the way in which the Lord showed his definitive care. And now we come to David and the bringing of the ark and the mistakes that they made. But here's David's confession in First Chronicles 15, 13. Because you did it at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us for that we sought him not after the due order or in the prescribed way. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God to Jerusalem. I haven't read the whole story because I feel that this audience would know that the bringing up of the ark on the cart and the stumbling of the cart and Uzzah's life being taken is reasonably well known and you can check it out for yourself in this chapter anyway. What needed to be sifted here? Well, they brought it up in the wrong way. It should have been carried by the Levites, shouldn't it? The ark shouldn't have been on the cart. That was something that the Philistines had done earlier on and they were adapting the ways of the nations around them instead of, as we read, doing it in the prescribed way, the way that God has ordained. The second thing was that David says, we sought him not. He did not inquire of the Lord how the ark should be brought up and in his self-reliance he'd made that fatal mistake that brought the death of one of the noble men of, in, of Israel. David, what needed to be sifted in his life? I suppose he was relying on his own wisdom, not relying on God, not seeking God, and that in due course, was sifted away because he learned, didn't he? And he made this confession here. And God blessed the house of Obed-Edom where the ark was laid for three months and eventually was brought to, to Jerusalem, wasn't it? And then the incident a little later on in chapter 21... First Chronicles chapter 21 and we'll read a few verses verse 1 it says Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel but we'll now read from verse 17 and David learned his lesson and David said unto God is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, 
what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me, and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons with him hid themselves. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David, and went out of the threshing floor, and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it me for the full price, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said to David, Take it, and let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings, and the threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meal offering. I give it all. And King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price, for I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. So Satan has moved David to number the people. The Samuel text tells us that the Lord initiated it. And we have to put the two together, don't we? And as in the case of Job, say that the Lord allowed Satan to stir the heart of David to number the people. What needed to be sifted here? David was probably in a time of rest. The wars were over. Putting his feet up perhaps, not needing, in his view, to inquire of the Lord so much. And though it was in his heart to build a house for God, still he now numbered the people. God had said that shouldn't happen. Perhaps because David wanted to show his material strength, the might of his war machine, and perhaps that was pride that motivated him there. Certainly, there was no reliance on the Lord, and he did not heed Joab's reasoning with him. And Joab said, You'll cause trespass if you do this. But there was a high-handedness in David's heart that day. Pride, perhaps. I'll decide. I'm the king. I'll go my own way. I won't listen to my counselors. In addition, when the people were numbered, they were supposed to collect atonement money, this, the silver shekel. And there's no record of that being done. Perhaps the most significant thing is that here was a, laid, a leader bringing judgment upon the people because of his own error. 
And though he pleaded with God to only deal with him, we read, don't we, that he was offered three, three types of judgment and he had to choose one. Three years at the, of famine, three months at the hands of his enemies, or to fall into the hands of the Lord for three days. And he chose to fall into the hands of a merciful God. So much needed to be stripped away. And yet we know that God wonderfully overruled the error of David, the evil of David, overruled the error to bring about good. And when the time came to stay, the judgment upon Jerusalem, the angel stood over the threshing floor of Ornan. And David was told to build an altar there and said, we didn't read it, but chapter 22 and verse one says, and David said of the threshing floor that he bought, this is the house of the Lord, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And this was an answer to David's prayer, wasn't it? Psalm 132, for example, I will not give sleep to mine eyes until I find a place for the resting place for the ark of the Lord, a house for God. And here God had marvelously overruled the pride and self-fulfilling nature of David's heart and brought about the revelation of the house of God, of where the house of God should be built. We've learned, haven't we, that this is Moriah, the place of Calvary, the place where the house of God is set up, because without Calvary, there can be no redemption, there can be no priesthood, there can be no priest, there can be no holy place. It all stems to Moriah and Calvary and the threshing floor of the Lord Jesus there on the cross. I wanted to show the gentleness, the overruling power of the one who is in charge of the threshing floor, even our Lord Jesus. I hope I've done it. When the wind blows across a cornfield, all the sheaves bend in the same direction. It's the wind, of course, that's blowing the chaff away. We know that the wind is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't it be lovely if the wind of the Holy Spirit bent us all the same way? And that the wind, come thou north wind, come thou south, blow upon your garden and sift the wheat away from our lives. Pride, self-confidence, lack of self-confidence, unbelief, all those things we've looked at. The non-bringing of the whole heart into the house of the Lord. Come, come wind, come blow, come blow upon us that what might be left is the true, the true wheat. 
And barley, we said, was a thing of poverty. But wheat is a thing of plenty. When we read about the heave offering, it says, when you come into the land, you shall take the food, the bread of the land. It's, it's a new feeding. Reminds me of the Joshua chapter 5, is it? Where they got to the land and it says, the manna ceased the day after the Passover. The manna ceased and they ate the corn of the land. And whereas the manna speaks of the bread of humiliation, wandering through the wilderness, the bread of the Lord's humiliation is over. And now he's in, now he's high priest, waving and heaving. And that's the new corn of the new land, the bread of exaltation. Bread of it, humiliation is over. The bread of exaltation has come. We say the barley is the weaker one, but the wheat is the one that's taken and ground and becomes flour and shows balance. And it's, it's indicative of the lovely meekness and gentleness of Christ that yielded to the wind. In summary, <clears throat> I wrote this. I'm being sifted still. My Lord is near. The wind is blowing on me while the Lord is deep in prayer. I am being sifted, but still I am his wheat. The worthless chaff is leaving as I endure the heat. I am being sifted, but in my heart appear the sweetest lovely graces, my life to fill and cheer. I am being sifted. There is no great alarm, for gentleness and meekness is added to my charm. The Lord grant his blessing on his word.